My name is Phil Stinson, and I'm on the faculty of Bowling Green State University. In this episode of the Police Integrity Laws podcast, we feature an interview of me on the Kelly and Company radio show from 710 KNUS News Talk Radio in Denver, Colorado. There are people in this country that analyze statistics. We have one of those gentlemen on the line right now, Dr. Philip Stinson with Bowling Green State University. 6,724 cases of non-federal sworn officers who were arrested during a seven-year period. And let's start right there and say good afternoon to Dr. Stinson. Sir, welcome. Hey, Steve. Thanks for having me. So, um, indeed, and Krista and I have a number of questions here. Krista, where do we start? Well, I was fascinated. You sent us a breakdown, which I'm greatly appreciative of, um, in terms of the officers that were arrested and then convicted. And I see here that... uh, so. If I read these correctly, of those that were convicted of off-duty crimes or arrested for off-duty crimes, 70% were convicted, and of on-duty crimes, 73% were then convicted. Am I reading those statistics correctly? Yeah, you are reading that correctly. There are a few things to keep in mind. Um, you know, there there are some issues in terms of limitations with the data that I have. I had to resort to, you know, innovative research design methodology to try to come up with a way when there aren't official statistics and try to study the phenomenon of police crime, that is, crime committed by sworn law enforcement officers. So uh, one thing to consider is it's really difficult to draw a bright line between on-duty and off-duty crimes by law enforcement officers because you can't turn it off when you go home for the day. Mm-hmm. So, for example, policing is violent, and we see a lot of work-family spillover with domestic violence, officer-involved domestic violence. So you are correct that in the cases of those 6,724 cases, uh, and about a half of those are a little bit less than half are off-duty crimes, uh, the about 70% conviction in the cases where we have conviction data. And it's a little bit higher for on-duty crimes, about 73%. And then you have subcategories, uh, more definitive in drug-related crimes, alcohol-related crimes, sex-related crimes, violent-related crimes. So what's the net takeaway here? Because we're talking about some bad apples, aren't we, here in the police force across the country? Well, that's one way to look at it, but but here's what I'd like to do. The the information that I sent you specifically on percentage of cases where we have conviction, and you just mentioned several different types of police crime. When I started studying this, it dawned on me that almost all of the crime where law enforcement officers are arrested is alcohol-related, drug-related, sex-related, violence-related, and or profit-motivated. Mm-hmm. In other words, those aren't mutually exclusive categories. And one of the things that's most interesting, if you take a close look at the uh, percentage of cases where there are convictions on at least one offense charged, that um, for the violence-related crime by police officers, that's where we have uh, the least convictions. Mm-hmm. In other words, it seems that the courts and juries when cases get to a jury, and this may be true with grand juries as well, that they're really reluctant to convict an officer when they're engaging in some sort of activities that are arguably criminal and violent, but they arise out of their official capacity as a law enforcement officer. So, for example, the the aggravated assault cases that we have, it's 59% of those resulted in conviction. That's really, really low. On the other hand, for on-duty gun-involved robberies by police officers, it's over, and that's not on the sheet I sent you, it's over 98% conviction. Hmm. So there's some things that courts just aren't going to excuse. They're not going to excuse certain sex crimes. They're not going to excuse on-duty robberies. But for the violence, Violence-related crimes, courts are really reluctant to to uh, convict an officer. 
Very interesting. I noticed here that for statutory rape, forcible rape, um, forcible sodomy, actually, um, that uh, and drug offenses, that courts, uh, the the juries were just not tolerant of that. And in in the vast majority of cases, there was a conviction. But with mm-hmm. um, simple assault, only 50 percent conviction there. Is that because the line between what an officer must do to apprehend a criminal and going over that line, is that because that line is sometimes kind of fuzzy? It is fuzzy. And by the way, keep in mind here, we're not just talking about trials and jury trials, because many of these cases actually end in a plea bargain, just like the rest of the cases in the in the court system, in the criminal justice system. But yeah, simple assault, it's exactly 50% conviction on uh, the cases where you have conviction data. And it, And again, it's just that you know, policing is violent. Everybody recognizes that. And when you get in the position where you've got to, you know, vote, where you've got to deliberate and decide, or you, as a judge, you even have to, you know, make that decision whether you're going to convict or not, they just give the benefit of the doubt, the slightest doubt goes in the favor of the police officer. So one way of looking at this, and I've been thinking about this now for a few days in terms of grand juries and everything else and looking at all this conviction data, um, maybe what's really going on here is that the presumption of innocence, which is afforded to law enforcement officers, simply isn't afforded to anybody else in the criminal justice system. In other words, we just have a a rubber stamp process that can be said, you know, that a ham ham sandwich could be indicted by a grand jury. But maybe that presumption of innocence is only holding true these days in special, special cases, such as those involving a law enforcement officer who's been accused of a crime. Well, this current climate, Krista and Professor, by the way, our guest is uh, Professor Philip Stinson from Bowling Green State University. It's a big project um, and, and studying arrest and conviction rates of 6,700 uh, some odd uh, police officers, sworn police officers. So grand juries, you brought this up, the indictment process I mean, all of this current climate is about not at least putting it before a jury. I mean, how does that factor into all this? Because I think most people that are protesting and all this, hey, they just want to get a cop in front of a jury, and these uh, grand juries are not willing to indict or, or bring it before a jury, at least on a criminal side. Yeah, you know, it's a lot of people are talking about that, well, a prosecutor can get any indictment that they want, but I, I just don't know that that's true. In my limited experience, I'm a recovering lawyer and a former police officer, and in my limited experience uh, in representing a client who happened to be a police officer before a federal grand jury, you know, it's a very strange process. The defense lawyer or the lawyer for anybody other than the government stays out in the hallway. You don't even go in the room. It's a one-sided process. And just like any other jury, such as a trial jury, you can't predict what a group of jurors is going to do when they vote on something. So it's just a, it's a really dicey thing. So here we've got situations where grand juries will not return a true bill. They will not indict law enforcement officers. And we see this time and time again, with some exceptions in, in these shooting cases, such as the uh, Randall Carrot case, the officer who shot and killed Jonathan Farrell in Charlotte, North Carolina earlier this year. Maybe it was last year. I can't recall. Where a first grand jury did not re- indict, and then a second grand jury, after the local prosecutor was removed and the state AG's office came in, second grand jury did return an indictment on a lesser charge. So it's you know, it's an interesting thing. You know what I, I think is, is interesting is that uh, I, I, I was just thinking about that line some more. So if I get mad at Steve and I just 
punch him. I assume that's simple assault. Which has happened, by or the way. Or is that, <laughs> or it may be aggravated assault. I don't know what the difference well, it is. Depends on, it, well, it could be aggravated if you, uh, if you broke his nose, for example. But short of that, let's just say simple assault. Okay. So uh, that's pretty clear cut. If we go before a jury, I, I'm clearly committing a crime. Maybe it's premeditated. Maybe I just flew off the handle, whatever. But if a police officer, in, a, in an attempt to arrest somebody, that person's gotten violent, and the officer shoves, pushes, or maybe hits the person, as a jury member, it becomes a lot less clear-cut then. I mean, and it, I could see where I might even think it was a mistake that this officer did this, but he was still, it, it's in the sort of craziness of the moment of dealing with a violent criminal. I still mm-hmm. might be willing to say that's not assault. Well, you know, law enforcement officers are permitted to use a reasonable amount of force to effectuate an arrest. And one of the problems here that we see is when an officer has made a decision that a person's being arrested and they're going to be handcuffed, it's not negotiable. It's not time to have a discussion in the street about whether or not that's going to happen. It is going to happen. And that's what we see, I think, with the Eric Garner case. You know, the officers at that point had tunnel vision, and their training went into play, and they did exactly as they were trained to do. Even if the policies of the NYPD had changed over time, they did what they were trained to do, and that good training from the academy came forth, and and that's what happened. And unfortunately, the the ugly truth is that on occasion – uh, people get hurt, and every once in a while, somebody dies in the course of trying to arrest them. It but does you, happen. But you don't consider that, as the widow of Garner has said, he was murdered. You don't consider that. It was a, uh, it was involuntary manslaughter. If it was one thing, if it was anything, uh, a thought on that, and then the difference between a criminal proceeding and a civil proceeding as it relates to police officers. Well, but I guess you, you had raised the point a few minutes ago about with uh, people want to get this to a trial, want it before a jury. If a grand jury is not even going to find um, um, you know, probable cause for an indictment, there's just no way you're going to get a court to find beyond a reasonable doubt. So I forgot your first question. I remember your second question about civil versus criminal. What was the first question? Well, it was the idea of, um, well, now I, I can't remember oh, myself. The, the widow of Eric Garner is calling, oh, murder. calling yeah. this murder. And clearly, yeah. I don't think that that is the case. Well, you've got to have, in order for murder, it would have to be premeditated uh, murder where there, the officer had the intent of killing him. And that's just not the case. The officer or the officers, however you're looking at it, they were trying to effectuate a lawful arrest. Now, we could argue the merits of physically arresting somebody for selling loose cigarettes and not collecting sales tax, that kind of thing. That That's not my job. Mm-hmm. But as far as if they decide instead of issuing a summons, they're going to uh, physically arrest someone, have them come down in handcuffs and go through the booking process, it's not negotiable. Yeah, I have a question. Isn't. Another question I just thought of. Yeah. Sorry. I, You know, if you just pulled out aggravated assault, simple assault, and uh, maybe a couple of these other ones that have to deal with force, would mm-hmm. it be possible to look in the database and break those up into um, whether the officer was uh, black or white or whether the, in, the the victim was black or white? Would that be possible? Or the, in terms of it, our database, yeah, we have about 270 quantitative variables that we code in our cases now. It's it's grown over the years mm. as uh, you know things become of interest to us. So, for example, uh, you know a gun variable, whether the the officer's crime was involved a firearm was something we added about two and a half years ago, and it took that whole time to code all these cases for that. So, yeah, we um, 
it's interesting. About three years ago, one of my graduate assistants came to me and said, you know, I think you're wrong. And, and I always am willing to enter that kind of a discussion. I'm, I'm, I was curious what he had to say. And he said, you know, you're really wrong about not coding for the officer's race because I think we can figure that out. We have the right materials, the right data, the right photographs, the right court records, the right news articles and, and videos. We can figure this out in a lot of our cases. So we've gone back and we actually do now code for race. And it's really difficult. Um, and, you know, we're missing data on a lot, but but it's something we're starting to look at and analyzing more. And, and uh, um, I do know from the little bit that I've looked at, there do seem to be some differences. It does seem that in some types of crime that black officers who get arrested are more likely to be convicted, and it seems like they're more likely to lose their job. Now, that's a that's a pretty general statement, though, and I, mm-hmm. and I really need to look at that closer with different types of crime. Mm-hmm. Now, as to the victims, we have not coded race because with the type of documentation that we have, um, it's really difficult to do that in a lot of the cases. Mm-hmm. That that would be fascinating to see because yeah, what really would. implied in this is is we're getting to the truth of an issue. And if you've got Al Sharpton's or if you've got Tavis Smiley, who's a, a talk show host in New York, African-American, mm-hmm. uh, using terms, even the Department of Justice, Eric Holder or the president saying that this is a national uh, a national problem. Um, some are saying it's an epidemic. It's open season on blacks in the case of Tavis Smiley. But you've got the president saying, look. This is a problem nationwide. Uh, what do your stats bear out as that being true or not? Well, I, I don't know yet in terms of the stats, but I can tell you anecdotally, I, I don't think we need to even bring race into the equation. I think if we control for race and we look at some of these high-profile cases in in recent months, so you've got Michael Brown in, in Missouri, you've got Jonathan Farrell in North Carolina, you've got Eric Garner in, in New York, and in each of those instances, those gentlemen were large men with, relatively speaking or comparatively speaking, smaller police officers. Well, you have a 12-year-old in Cleveland, too. Rice is part of that equation. Yeah, it's completely that's, different. That's a situation that I think there, the, the, the video is very telling in that case. And the officer who shot the boy, and it's a terrible tragedy, was put in harm's way by the officer who was driving the car and drove him right up to a situation where he had to make a split-second life-or-death decision when he was confronted with a male with a gun. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, but, and ba- but back to yeah, the others. Okay, tough. fair enough. Back to the others, though. Um, this I- this idea of this being an epidemic. I, I just don't know that. I just don't know that to be the case. It's 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 a uh, certainly a lot of these cases, and it's something that I've thought about for a long time. Because if you go back to uh, you know Tennessee versus Garner, the U.S. Supreme Court case in 1985, I do think that in the early 1980s and in the 70s there were an awful lot of cases where uh, black teenagers were being shot and killed, shot in the back. Mm. And that's just, you know, I do think that, that if you want to use the word epidemic, I think that was, you know, mm-hmm. p- perhaps so during that time period. But I just don't know that that's the problem here because there's there's other things that come into play. If, if you're a large, large man and you're going to, you know, um, assault a police officer, um, as allegedly apparently happened in the case of Michael Brown, or you're going to resist arrest, which, by the way, is assault on a police officer um, in the case of Eric Gardner, you know, um, th- those are crimes. Mm-hmm. And it has nothing to do with the race. Now, that being said, I'm not willing to say that not- this has nothing to do with race. I think this is an important dialogue and an important discussion, and I think that that's healthy. And I like what you contributed to this situation because you're basically saying that regardless of race, juries are reluctant to convict officers of of 
of, of using violence in, in the uh, the stopping of a crime or the arresting mm-hmm. Of, mm-hmm. of of a person who is uh, thought to have committed a crime. Yes. I like that because it kind of s- strips out the drama and just says, hey, this is what juries mm-hmm. don't like to second guess officers because mm-hmm. they know this no, is a don't. difficult job. Yep. Let me give you one specific example, which is mostly in off-duty crimes. When we looked at officer-involved domestic violence, where they're arrested for some sort of a domestic violence crime, I had a variable, and I wish I could remember why I came up with this variable to begin with. It was years ago at this point. But the variable is, in domestic violence cases, whether if it, if it involved a firearm, whether that firearm was issued by the department or personally owned by the officer. And what we see is if they use a department-issued firearm in committing a crime of domestic violence, they are much less likely to be convicted than if they use a personally owned firearm huh. in committing officer-involved domestic violence. And that's quite telling to the point you were just making. Very interesting. Uh, Dr. Stinson, thank you very much for the time. We appreciate it, and we'll be in touch again as this uh, continues to unfold and take different... Thanks a lot. You bet. Appreciate thank that. You. Uh, from Bowling Green State University, uh, Ph.D., And uh, a recovering attorney, I like the way he said that, Philip Stinson. That concludes this episode of the Police Integrity Laws podcast. Thanks again to 710 KNUS News Talk Radio in Denver, Colorado, for giving us permission to use their audio recording on the Police Integrity Laws podcast. The interview was originally broadcast live in Denver, Colorado, during the Kelly & Company radio show on December 9, 2014. For more information on my research, please go to www.bgsu.edu forward slash police integrity lost. This project was supported by award number 2011-IJ-CX-0024, awarded by the National Institute of Justice, Office of Justice Programs, United States Department of Justice. The opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Justice.